Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Jake. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in June in this Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adjust to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright devices when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Now, we're approaching the longest day of the year for us here in the Northern Hemisphere, the summer solstice on the 21st of June. This means that we have much longer days and much shorter nights, so less time for stargazing. There are still objects up there to be seen if you can wait up long enough. And if you want to catch a stellar object early, before you go to bed, Venus is visible in the west just after sunset for the whole month. If you have a look on the evening of the 21st of June itself, you'll be able to see the crescent moon next to Venus in the sky. Venus also has phases from our perspective here on Earth. These aren't visible to the naked eye, but if you look at the planet through a telescope, being careful not to look at the sun if it hasn't fully set, you should be able to observe how much of the planet is being lit by the sun. And if you happen to be up just before dawn, especially later in the month, you can easily catch Jupiter and Saturn in the eastern sky. The Veil Nebula is a large supernova remnant. The star that made it was 20 times more massive than the Sun, and scientists estimated that it would explode about 10,000 years ago, so it might have been observed by our ancestors. They would have seen it as a very bright point in the sky, as bright as Venus. In the modern day, you'll need a telescope or a pair of binoculars to observe the remnant. It covers a relatively large area of the sky, around three degrees or six times the diameter of the full moon. It's so wide that people often break it down into individual nebulae to observe, like the Western Veil, the Eastern Veil, and Pickering's Triangle. One way of finding it is to look for Cygnus. The brightest stars in this constellation form a cross in the sky, the Veil Nebula is at the eastern end of the cross. Now, on to one of the most famous globular clusters in the sky, M13, or the Hercules Cluster. Bigger telescopes, for example 200mm reflectors, really do it justice, but it can easily be spotted by smaller telescopes and even binoculars. If you live somewhere with basically no light pollution, you can even catch M13 with the unaided eye, if the conditions are right. Very, very dark and clear skies. You might also want to try the technique of averted vision to catch a glimpse of it. As the name suggests, M13 is in the constellation of Hercules. Throughout June, Hercules will be a constellation visible in the southern sky, reaching its highest point in the sky around midnight. M13 is within the central part of the constellation, which is known as the Keystone Asterism. This globular cluster is actually a group of several hundred thousand stars, all bound together by gravity. They were born together over 12 billion years ago, and they stay together, in the clump, orbiting the galactic centre. One fun fact about this cluster is that a message to aliens was directed here in 1974. This is known as the Arecibo message, as it was sent by the Arecibo telescope, which we've discussed on the podcast before. This message contained encoded information about our DNA, what humans are like, and where our planet is. Of course, if anyone in the Hercules Cluster is actually there to receive it, they're not going to get it for 25,000 years, as the stars are 25,000 light-years away. It's then going to take another 25,000 years for a reply. 
The message was arranged by Frank Drake with help from Carl Sagan and other astronomers, and it was attended more of a, a technology demonstration than a serious attempt to communicate. But you never know. For our Southern Hemisphere listeners, see if you can find Omega Centauri in the constellation of Centaurus. With a magnitude of 3.9, it can easily be seen with the unaided eye. To ancient astronomers, it was known as a star, as you can't really tell what it is with the unaided eye. Ptolemy wrote about it in his work Almagest in the 2nd century and referred to it as a star. Edmund Halley was the second astronomer royal here at the Royal Observatory back in the 17th century. He was considered to be the first person to classify Omega Centauri as a non-stellar object in 1677, when he referred to it as a luminous spot or patch. We now know it's another globular cluster, containing around 10 million stars, which are about 12 billion years old. If you do get a chance to look at this cluster through a telescope, you should give it a go. It is a stunning collection of stars. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website. That's rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our Cosmic News. Okay, on to our Cosmic News. So in this section of the podcast, myself and Jake will be bringing two news stories to the table. And what we should do, Jake, is, is introduce you to everyone. Hi, Jake. Hello, it's great to be back. Uh, always a pleasure to be on the Royal Observatory's number one podcast. <laughs> That's what we should start calling ourselves. And yes, thank you for filling in for Ophelia. So it's myself and Jake today. I'm Jess. And we are going to be bringing you two news stories. Just to recap, last month I spoke about the brightest gamma ray burst that has been seen of all time, which is known as, as the boat, the brightest of all time. Oh, cool. that's a great yeah. uh, acronym. I love that. <laughs> the boat. And Ophelia spoke about uh, a magnetic field linked to an, to an exoplanet, to a planet outside of our solar system, which is pretty exciting. But now it's time for our news stories. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, would you like to go first? I would love to. Yes. Now, my bit of news uh, this month is quite a recent bit of news, actually, as all news is, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All news is relatively recent. De definition That's of what, news, Jake. That is what on. makes it news. Yeah. This is about the meteorite that punched a hole in the roof of a house in New Jersey. Oh, no. In, at the beginning of May. Wow. Yes, so this happened in a place called Hopewell Township in New Jersey in the USA. And on the 8th of May, uh, a resident of this township, a person called... Susie Kopp walked into the upstairs bedroom of her father's home to find an unexpected rock in the middle of the floor. So this starts out a little bit like a mystery. Mm, a very, quite not the most thrilling mystery of all time, if I'm no, honest. not to start with, but Susie was understandably a little bit uh, bemused. Yeah, you would be. How big was this rock that she found just sitting on the floor of her upstairs bedroom of her father's house? This rock was roughly 15 centimetres by 10 centimetres. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, from my research, supposedly the size of a mango, or even uh, some fully grown Syrian hamsters <laughs> can get that big. So this is a very large hamster, or 
an average-sized mango. <laughs> How long did you spend selecting objects which were 15 by 10 centimetres before you landed on regular mango or large hamster? Far too long than yeah. I would care to mention, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, large rock. Uh, what happened next? Well, at first she thought it was just a, a random rock from outside, understandably, but she did wonder why on earth that would be in a bedroom. What is a random rock doing here? That is when she noticed two holes in the ceiling. Ooh. Two holes rather than one. So firstly, for a meteorite, it's a little bit confusing in and of itself. It is believed one of those holes is from where the rock entered through the roof and through the ceiling. The other one is where it likely ricocheted off the floor, hit the ceiling what? again, punching a second hole in the ceiling before coming back down to the floor where there is a large dent in the floorboards where the rock came to rest. That is incredible. I mean, they do move fast, but that gives you really gives you a sense of sense of the speed of that piece of rock. It's very powerful, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of speed, some of these meteorites, as you imagine, because they're falling to Earth incredibly fast, mm -hmm. uh, reaching terminal velocities of somewhere in the region of 200 to 400 miles per hour. So thank goodness no one was hit. Mm, that is very, very fast. Have you, you've told me the size of the, of the meteorite in both mm. rocks, mangoes and hamsters. Yes. Have you told me the mass? No, so this rock weighed just under one kilogram. Mm -hmm. That's about five mangoes <laughs> or ten hamsters. A mango weighs more than a hamster. Yeah, twice as much. Oh, <laughs> learn things every day. <laughs> <laughs> right, heavy enough that you don't want it hitting you on the head. That's right, yeah, absolutely. Mm. At 200 miles per hour, especially. Wow. Yeah. So at this point, uh, she's understandably little bit confused. Uh, she also noted to uh, local news stations that it was warm. Mm. She said it was definitely warm. Wow. <laughs> which makes sense. It's just fallen through the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, it would have, been, would have been very hot at one point. Yes. So uh, her and her family had a discussion. They came to the conclusion it was probably a meteorite. So they called the local police, who first of all actually brought in a hazmat team, so a hazardous materials team, to examine the rock for signs of harmful radio radioactivity. As it turns out, it wasn't very hazardous at all. Uh, a lot of these meteorites do have uh, radioactive elements in them, things like potassium and uranium, but they're no more radioactive usually than bananas are, so not a problem. Okay, but I guess they, they weren't to know that. Not everyone... Has, has meteorites around them every day. So fair enough, they took it, took it carefully. What they, happened to the meteorite next? So after this, the police decided to contact the College of New Jersey uh, to help identifying uh, if this was indeed a meteorite or just a local rock. <laughs> that someone had thrown through the roof of her house. Exactly, yeah. yes. Better, better to be uh, comprehensive on mm. this. They examined it using an electron microscope they made density measurements on it, visual examination. I think that means looking at it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they found quite a few things. They found, uh, notably, that the top layer of this rock was blackened. It had a blackened crust because it was partially burned up in the atmosphere. That's a pretty key sign. <laughs> uh, it had less iron than other members of its rock family. 
and it was about 40% denser than the most common rocks found on Earth, things like slate or granite. But again, I think the fact that it had burned <laughs> while falling through the atmosphere was a pretty, pretty big clue. Yeah, yeah, and coming through the ceiling. Yeah, yeah that one too. <laughs> but they, So they confirmed on the 11th of May that this was not a rock of Earth origin, about three days after it landed. That is awesome. I mean, I'm glad no one was hurt, mm. uh, but very, very cool. I would love for a meteorite to fall through the ceiling of the Royal Observatory. Oh, Ver yeah. Very carefully, without well, damaging any of our historic buildings. That's right. Well, the thing is as well, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure in all of my research, I'm not sure whether they get to keep it or not. Mm. Yeah, I know the it's, they've... Whether they've been made that decision or not, it is being examined more for scientific study. But uh, I don't know if they get to have it as a souvenir afterwards. Yeah. That'd be nice. That would be nice. You know, and I don't think, I don't know if you get any compensation for a meteorite coming through your ceiling. Mm, it's tricky because, yeah, no one, no one is in, in charge of the meteorites. No one's responsible for their falling. You might call that an act of God. I don't yeah. know if your home insurance covers that. <laughs> well, I wish them luck. Yes. And as it turns out as well, by doing this study, they know exactly what type of meteorite it is. Mm -hmm. It's called a stony chondrite, mm -hmm. which is a very common type of meteorite, supposedly. It is non-metallic. That's why they call it stony. It's not got a lot of metal in it, which makes sense. Uh, and it's not been modified in any way over time. So it's not been melted or anything like that. So it's mm -hmm. uh, very much as it has been for a long time. Billions of years, right? Exactly. Formed from very small grains and dust that came together under the force of gravity in the early solar system, no less. So they believe it to be about 4.56 billion years old, making it slightly older than the Earth. Mm -hmm. So we have a meteorite here at the observatory. We certainly uh, do. It's at the bottom of the stairs, just, just next to the entrance to the toilets. Yes. I'd say it's at least 15 hamsters in size. <laughs> uh, very heavy. Lots so, of mangoes. Yeah, many, many mangoes. Because we don't have a stony meteorite. We have an iron meteorite. So it's, it's iron and nickel. So it's much denser, mm. much heavier. I've never picked it up. It is attached to the plinth in which it lives. Yes. Um, I think you might... If you are going to measure that one in mangoes, we might have to think of a new unit. That's half, it. Half a baby elephant? Watermelons? Half Water a baby <laughs> elephant? That's a good one. They're pretty heavy. They're pretty heavy and pretty mm -hmm. big. We'll have to maybe ask a curator the, the weight of our meteorite, and then we can let everyone know what it is in mangoes. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I was surprised to find out, actually, uh, in looking at this story is just how many meteorites actually hit the Earth every mm. year. It's suspected to be around 500 meteorites hit the Earth every year, but less than 10 are usually recovered. Mm. Most of them end up in the ocean, as you might expect. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the one, these, this particular type of meteorite, these chondrites, they're mostly found in Antarctica. I suspect it's because they're easier to find amongst the, you know, the very clean white landscape. Yeah. But it's also that scientists go to Antarctica deliberately to get them from Antarctica because they're easy to uh, find. So you can have expeditions just to be like a rock collecting person in the in the Antarctic. Really? Mm -hmm. 
Another place where they find meteorites at a higher rate than, than most places is Morocco. Really? Yeah. There's a large amount of desert land. And a bit like, a bit like the, the snow, a desert is a, a smooth, untouched area where it's easy to see things that have fallen. It's not like there's lakes and mud and, and trees covering it. And it also has a large a nomadic population. So there's lots of people in Morocco who are traveling across these like untended to areas in the desert. Um, and a lot of those people are aware of meteorites because uh, there's a trade in meteorites. You can sell them. Mm, yes. Um, so like a combination of people moving across a desert, the desert being there, and people being educated in, in what meteorites look like because they know their, their value, means you find loads of meteorites in Morocco. Wow. Mm. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, meteorites. That's my story. Awesome. Yeah. Susie Cop and the Cop family, I presume that's what they're called. Uh, luckily, no one was harmed. No radioactive uh, injuries, <laughs> as well as physical injuries from this. Mm-hmm. Uh, no um, word on what they're going to name it yet, whether they oh, yeah. name it after the location they found it in or anything like that. Though... Supposedly, when meteorites hit human-made objects, things like houses, cars, things like that, they often, sort of as a nickname, call them hammerstones. Okay. I've not heard that before. That's great. So it's a hammerstone. It's a hammerstone. Yeah. The official name does tend to be a location name, doesn't it? Mm. Yes. What's the town called again? Township? This town is called Hopewell Township, and it's in New Jersey. Mm. The New Jersey meteorite. All right. Would you like my news story? Yes, yes I would, absolutely. My new story starts with a a question for you. Um, It's a question that I'm sure we both get asked, I get asked, I'm sure you get asked as well, by the children that visit us. Where did Mars's moons come from? Ooh, that's Mm. a great question. Many astronomers believe they may have been asteroids captured from the asteroid belt, though Mm -hmm. there is reason to believe that that is not the case. Perfect answer, I couldn't catch you out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Exactly. So Mars has two moons, for anyone that doesn't know. They're called Phobos and Deimos, mm-hmm. uh, which means fear and terror or fear and panic. That's right. Um, they're fairly small. We often describe them as potato moons here at the observatory. Uh, the bigger one is about 27 kilometres across and the smaller about 12 kilometres across. It's a big potato. Big potato. But small for a moon. Small for a moon. I wonder how many potatoes you could fit inside Phobos, the potato moon. There's definitely a back-of-an-envelope calculation to be done there. Well, we'll let you know. Viewers, if you have an estimate for how many potatoes could fit inside Phobos or Deimos, please do let us know. We'd be interested in those numbers. Mm, you can tweet us at ROG Astronomers. Yeah, or send us an email if you like. Yes, so there's these two moons. Most notably, they are not big enough to be spherical, like our own moon. They're small and irregularly sized. Uh, Mars is also closer to the asteroid belt than the Earth. Uh, which makes a lot of astronomers assume, think, that these moons were captured asteroids. So they were pulled in by the gravity of Mars, and now they, they orbit Mars. Mm. Uh, but that's a theory, it's not being confirmed. And my new story from this month is that the HOPE spacecraft, which is a spacecraft orbiting Mars right now, um, it's a mission from the UAE, from the United Arab Emirates, um, has been taking images of Mars's moons, uh, specifically Deimos. So it altered its orbit in order to bring it round to the far side of Deimos and study the moon, like, really close. It got to within about 100 kilometres. Mm. I've seen some of the images from this, and it, it, even though here on Earth 60 kilometres sounds like a really big distance, when you're that far away from a moon, 
it looks really close up. Yeah, it's like tumbling past the camera, isn't it? It feels yeah. really, really close to you when you watch the video. We should share the video. Uh, so it took photos of the moon, and it also did some spectroscopy. So it studied the light coming, coming off of the moon, reflecting off of the moon, so we could learn more about it. And we've only had like initial reports of this. It hasn't been truly sort of scientifically analysed. Uh, but the data they got initially suggested that the composition of these moons was similar to the composition of Mars. Interesting. Mm. What does that suggest? That suggests that they're not captured asteroids, but they were formed possibly from an impact, like our own moon. So something broke them off of Mars. Ooh. Mm. So in a similar way to, like you say, we sort of think the most popular theory of the moon or our moon's formation was some sort of giant impact with a proto-planet or something like that, that it might be a similar case for Mars? Yeah, it's an option. Uh, it's not... And it's sort of definitely true theory, because it's a theory. Hmm. Uh, the fact that they are so irregularly shaped, and the fact that they they look different to Mars, they're optically dark, they're not the same colour as Mars, suggests that they probably are asteroids, because asteroids are often very dark lumps of rock. Hmm. But if they have similar compositions, maybe they're, maybe they're Mars-like. So wh Mars. what kind of object could it have been that hit Mars then? It would have been something similar to what we think hit the Earth, so a protoplanet. Right, yes. Um, people often say that the, the protoplanet or the half-formed object that hit the Earth was about the size of Mars. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the object which hit Mars would have been maybe about the size of Ceres, the dwarf planet. Oh, okay. It's a description I've read. Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So it would be interesting if these rocks were from Mars, uh, just because it's interesting to know. But also because it will give us some clues into the, the early history of Mars. Because Mars has had geological changes, atmospheric changes throughout its history and its lifetime. So the surface isn't unchanged or untouched. Mm. So if these rocks were knocked off billions of years ago, they'll give us a sense of the environment of Mars billions of years ago. Wow. So it helps us build that picture. Yeah, look into the, the early life of Mars. Mm. So is this mission still ongoing? Is it going to keep on collecting data, still orbiting? It is, yeah. So um, later this year, they'll be doing more flybys of Deimos and studying the moon again in more detail. Won't be getting quite as close the second time around. I think I read 200 kilometers. And there's also going to be another mission to Mars's moons um, in the next few years run by the Japanese Space Agency. Really? Hmm. Have you heard of the Martian Moons Exploration Mission? I have not. It's known as MMX. MMX. Mm -hmm. So MMX is going to study the moons of Mars, similar, similar to Hope, to think about their, their composition and their origin. But also, it's planning something very ambitious. It's planning a sample return. Ooh. Mm. There's not been a sample returned from, from Mars or from moons of Mars before, has there? No. It'll be the first one. Wow. Um, the, the launch date is currently set for 2024, with the return with the samples in 2029. And yeah, they want to take a sample of Phobos and bring it back to Earth, which wow. has never been done before. Mm -hmm. There are plans for a Mars sample return mission. That's a, a NASA project that's linked to, to Perseverance, the rover. Um, but if JAXA stick to their timeline, they might get their sample of Phobos back before we get the sample of Mars back. Wow, mm. that is making NASA look a little bit slow. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so with that sample, they could really kind of help to solidify that hypothesis right about the formation of Deimos and maybe Phobos as well yeah definitely well I say definitely it would definitely help it would definitely help mm.
Because even if you have instrumentation on board a spacecraft or on board a rover, it's not of the same like size and, and quality that we have in, in labs on Earth. Mm -hmm. So we can get much more detail if we can bring samples back to the Earth. We can study them more easily. Wow, that's Ooh. amazing. Could have a, a piece of Deimos in... What year is it now? <laughs> in six years. Yeah. Do you think they'll let us touch it? Us personally? Mm. Oh, definitely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've never touched a moon rock either. Have you touched a moon rock? I've not touched a moon rock. I've, I've seen a few moon rocks, yeah. but I've never touched them. There are a couple of places where they let the public, like people not doing science experiments, touch mm. pieces of moon. I think there's a, an American museum that allows that. Really? Well, I suppose as well, because you've got Apollo moon rock, actual samples brought back, and then you've got bits of moon meteorite as well. Mm. So got two on the list to tick off. <laughs> I have touched an, an actual meteorite because we have the one here on site and we have mm -hmm. some a handling collection as well. Um, I'm assuming you've touched our meteorite. Oh, many times. Okay. Many times. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I was wondering, actually, if our, if our listeners have ever touched a meteorite. That is a good question. Yes. So I guess we have two questions for you this month. Can you work out how big Phobos is in terms of mangoes? Mm, please do show your working as well. <laughs> yeah, no guesses. Estimates. Estimates. And let us know if you've ever ever been able to touch a meteorite, had that option. Yeah, that I'm, not, I, I'm guessing that's an uncommon thing. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know what proportion of, of our listeners have touched one. Yes. Mm. I'm guessing there's a higher proportion than the... Than the general population, probably. Mm, possibly, yeah. <laughs> well, that is our two news stories for this month. Oh, can I tell you something else? Please do. So we've spoken on the podcast previously about JUICE, which is the Jupiter's Icy Moons Explorer. That's right. Yes, it's a spacecraft going to Jupiter's Icy Moons. It launched about a month ago. Yes. Yeah. So the spacecraft launched and everything was successful. It, it left the Earth. It left the rocket fairing. It's out there. It's going. But when everything started unfolding and, and deploying, once it was out in space, uh, one bit got stuck. Oh no. Yeah. Uh, it was an antenna that got stuck. The antenna's known as RIME. It's the, the radar for icy moons exploration antenna. And it wouldn't fit in the, in the rocket fairing unfolded. So it's folded up and then once it's got more space, it can unfold. Uh, but it did not unfold. Something got stuck. There was a little pin that didn't quite shift out of the way. Which, which is a problem, because it's, it's gone now, and we can't bring it back to fix it. Um, so uh, were they planning to... Is there anything that can be done? Yeah, the, the first thing it did was shake juice. <laughs> it can shake? They can make it shake? Yeah, it's got, it's got thrusters that we can control from here on Earth. They gave it a bit of a jiggle to try and like, oh. get, the, mm -hmm. get the loose pin properly loose. Um, that didn't work. Uh, they then tried to, to sort of orientate the spacecraft to warm up, the right part of it because with the warmth of the sun metals expand yeah and so they were hoping the right amount of expansion and contraction would loosen the pin that didn't work but then there was a little uh, mechanical device that they used a couple of days ago which sort of jolted it jolted <laughs> the, <laughs> the little pin out and the antenna is finally free and unfolded successfully oh my goodness yeah i love the sort of weird ingenuity that you get in space missions where it's just something's gone wrong there's no clear method of fixing it so we're just going to try all these different odd things we'll heat it up with the sun so that <laughs> things expand we'll, we'll jiggle it around you know sort of like in apollo 13 where they're just sort of 
ripping things off the wall to say, well, we can turn this into a, into a filter and things like that. Yeah, it's ingenuity. And yes. I mean... Mm, very important. Um, so that's just a mini news story. That was all I have for you. I'm happy that it's free and I wanted to share that with everyone. That's very nice. Is there... Because there's, there's footage of it unfurling, right? Or of it opening up, right? Yes. So there's a little sort of camera on board for, for observing things and in this in this footage you can see it desperately trying to unfold i say desperately it's it's not alive but it feels desperate and getting stuck each time and then you can see it finally successfully unfolding outwards wow yeah, yeah. i love that now for modern space missions alongside just the amazing scientific data and the scientific footage you get from things you also just get these amazing sort of behind the scenes views of you know like you say that unfurling and things like that whereas in the past, you don't see those extra little bits. And when we go back to the moon, it's going to be in 4K for whatever the high definition. It's going to be amazing. Whereas you just didn't have that before. Yeah. So now we even see the mishaps happening, <laughs> which is really cool. It is. Yeah, imagine, I mean, we got a huge amount of, of like footage and, and public engagement and, and tours and things from those astronauts, from the Apollo astronauts. Um, but from the space station, you can... You can present video chats live, like the amount of mm. connection we have. So imagine how much content we're going to get oh my goodness. from the surface of the moon. Yeah, it's going to mm. be amazing. Maybe another music video like when Chris Hadfield did Space Oddity <laughs> on the ISS. <laughs> I hope so. I hope they're planning that. That'd be nice. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's everything. Do you have anything else you want to share? No, just <laughs> let us know. Uh, how many mangoes was, what was <laughs> how many mangoes fit inside? Phobos, I think. We Phobos? Yeah. <laughs> Is that what we want to know? That's what we want How to know. How many mangoes fit inside Phobos? Please show you're working. Um, have you ever touched a meteorite? Let us know. Mm-hmm. And if you have, when, where, and how did it make you feel? <laughs> Lovely. And yeah. would you do it again? So that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And as always, keep looking up. <laughs>